Do you need help in your business? Do you need help understanding how to grow and scale and profitably build your company into the business that you want it to be? Well, you're in luck. I have been working for the past three and a half, almost four years now with some of the most successful real estate investors from around the country, among them Andy McFarlane and Bill Allen. And we've developed a program called Seven Figure Flipping. Seven Figure Flipping is a mastermind coaching and mentoring program designed to get you and your business to the next level. If you're interested in finding out more and want to know how you can get involved, shoot me an email at mike at juststartrealestate.com, subject line help, and I will get a hold of you. We'll hop on the phone and we'll talk about it. If it's right for you, I'll let you know. If it's not right for you and your business at this point, I'll let you know that too. But at the very least, you'll find out if it's a good fit. So shoot me an email at mike at juststartrealestate.com and let's talk. All right, on with the show. Do you always turn all of the units or not always? That's Before a great you question too. Mike, you're full of good questions. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I try. I'm listening. I'm- you're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, guys, thank you for joining me here on Just Our Real Estate. I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited that you're spending time with me. Uh, I say it all the time, but guys, I really mean it. I know that you're busy and everyone's busy and there's a lot of things we need to do. And, and I value your time and I, I'm really appreciative that you choose to spend it here with me, uh, at least for a few uh, minutes uh, of the day. And and I'm, I just can't tell you how much that means to me. Uh, also, if you're getting a lot out of this podcast, if you really are enjoying it, please go to iTunes and give me a rating and review and let me know what you think. It means a lot. It helps me get found. And it's really the best thing you can do to get back to the show if you're getting some good value out of it. So uh, with that being said, let's dive into the show. I, I have a guest on today, Anna Myers. Uh, she is a commercial real estate multifamily investor who is just doing some incredible things, running a large scale business and really has some, some valuable tools and tips and things that she's doing that she shares in this um, in this interview and uh, just just had a great time talking to her. It was a very eye-opening interview and I think you guys are going to love it. So let's go ahead and, and dive into that interview now. All right, guys. Uh, thank you. And Anna, thank you. Anna Myers is my guest today. I, I appreciate you being on, Anna. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Anna serves as the vice president of Grow Cavitas, a commercial real estate investing company in the San Francisco Bay Area. With an extensive background as a programmer and systems architect in the tech industry, Anna migrated full-time into commercial real estate. She specializes in applying her technology skills to evaluate multifamily deals. She also teaches underwriting for multifamily you and an, and an apartment investing education company founded uh, by Neil Bawa. Anna and Neil partnered to purchase 500 plus units of apartment projects in 2018. And their goal this year, and I'll ask you when we get to that point, was to put another 300 units in your portfolio in the first quarter of 2019. Anna, thank you uh, for being here and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Mike. It's wonderful to be here with you. And uh, happy to happy to participate. Awesome, thank you. Did did you get to the three hundred, or how did your first quarter we go? We awesome. did. We we uh, were we completed that goal, and uh, we're on to bigger and better things. We've got a great year ahead of us. 
Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I know a little bit about you, but I don't know if my audience does. They may or may not. But let's tell them a little bit about who you are, kind of where you come from, your background, and then let's dive into what you're doing because the stuff that you're up to uh, is really cool. You're doing some really neat stuff, and, and I really want to dive into that and, and explore it. But let's talk about you as a person, and let's go back a, a little bit before your real estate career and, and talk about where you came from. Okay, great. Well, um, a lot of people like to say, like, you know, where I started in real estate. And um, my story in real estate did not start by reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, although I have read the book. <laughs> um, so my, my start in real estate actually started before I was born because my grandfather is a commercial real estate maverick in Southern California. So I was born into a family. I'm the youngest grandchild and born into a family where he had already, you know, started as a flipper and then um, built up this, this portfolio where he was um, you know, buying land and, and building shopping malls and, you know, commercial buildings. So very, very large portfolio. My father's an architect. So my whole family was in commercial real estate. We had an office, big billboards, all that stuff. Nice. But I didn't go into commercial real estate. Um, the IT industry or computers were really taking off when I was, you know, uh, you know, 18, 19. And uh, I, I'm a problem solver. I love puzzles. I love doing that type of stuff. So my dad really encouraged me to look at computer programming because he saw it like, this is something that's going to take off. I think you're going to be good at it. So um, I went into IT. So that's where my, you know, my degrees um, are all related to information technology and uh, had a great um, career in information technology. I started as a programmer. I eventually became a systems architect, um, leading very large projects of people. Um, in addition to programming skills, I'm a, a very visual person and I, I kind of specialize in user interface and and um, human elements. So how do you bring the the data to humans? Um, and I think that's um, been a focus of mine, and I, I still bring that today on on that that inner human interface to technology. Um, so fast forward to 2000, the IT industry crashed, and it crashed hard. Yeah. And I had been making you know really good money um, as an entrepreneur. I've always worked as an entrepreneur for myself, by the way. So I, I was working as a consultant. And I was like, I am not working for that dollar, those amounts that they're going to be offering me now. I said, there's no way. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I actually started a photography studio. Oh, wow. So yeah. That's a little so far I, from I, IT, right? It is. It is. <laughs> so I pivoted and I started a photography studio in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it was a digital photography because uh, digital photography was viable in mm -hmm. 2000. And I brought my tech skills and applied them to my business of, of photography and uh, built up a great business. But Nice. What I learned in that business was, um, and I was very successful in it, um, what I learned is that uh, any business that is relying on you as an individual, even though you own that business, to be there all the time, you own a business, like yeah. you know, like they say, in rich dad, a poor dad. So that is a terrible business model. So I realized it does not scale. Yeah. So I uh, was looking for my next thing because I needed my life to scale, and that's when I came back to real estate and started applying my tech skills, which I brought with me, as well as my visual artist skills to commercial real estate. I set a five-year plan to exit my studio and replace you know, my income with commercial real estate. And I succeeded. So a year ago, I finished those five years. And for the past uh, year plus, um, I've been working full-time as a commercial real estate investor. Okay. Now you said you brought your, your uh, visual um, art skills to real estate. How, how so? Just out of curiosity, how did, how did that apply? Um, well, when we are, when we are presenting um, 
you know, projects to investors, mm -hmm. there's a very visual element to okay. it. You know, creating OMs, there's always yeah. like landing pages. Um, you know, everything is visual. If you're, if when you're, when you're doing marketing and selling, yeah. it's a very visual thing. And I, you know, so having that skill set, and and especially when I have the tech, technical skill set behind it to know how to make things visually look good yeah. on the web or, you know, I know, I know Adobe and design and, you know, all the various um, stuff. Not that I want to be the one that's, you know, behind yeah. the desk doing that all the time, but if it, if that's what it takes, I'll sit down and, and crank it out, you nice. know? Nice. So, okay. So multifamily is what you're doing now. You guys are just blowing up. Obviously we, we talked about that at the top when we talked about your background, why multifamily, why is that the, is, is it your, your, your family background? You kind of understand, you know it, or what yeah, about multifamily? Really question. So I started out in single family, like, like many people. And I, I started out in single family and small multis trying to take care of my tax issues, trying yeah. to bring my taxes under control. Yeah. And, and that really helped. And originally I was planning on just staying in the single family and doing that, that thing that they say you should do like, Oh, you should max out your loans and you know, you and your spouse, you each get 10 and yep. then you've got 20 single families <laughs> yeah. or, you know, and you're like, yep. yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, but what I started realizing as a person that's always, uh, I'm, I'm like the spreadsheet queen. I always have been. Mm -hmm. So um, I was always analyzing markets and analyzing deals. And I'm like, this is going to take forever. And this is going to be really hard to scale. Yeah. And so then I took a, um, a boot camp. I started looking at other options. What kept me away from, from, uh, from multifamily and commercial real estate, as we call it, I was scared of the loans because I was like, oh, yeah. why would I want to get a seven-year loan? That sounds so scary. Yeah. Um, I was um, also... Um, didn't have enough money to to take down such a big project, and I was looking to just spend use my own money. So I was um, a roadblock to myself. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing was that I wanted to do it just me and my husband. I'm like, no, 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 I don't need anybody else. Well, when you're working in multifamily, you work in teams. Yeah. So you know, you're which is an awesome thing once you get over yourself. So. <laughs> yeah. So um, so why multifamily? because I have control over multifamily. So once I realized that as a person, a spreadsheet person, mm -hmm. that the value of a multifamily or a commercial property is based on the net operating income yep. divided by the cap rate. Yep. So the net operating income is something I control. It is the operating income minus the operating expenses. That's how you get your net operating income. Yep. Those are two things I can control. I can, I can increase my rents, I can add other income, I can decrease my expenses, and then it's divided by the market cap rate. That's how you figure out the value of a multifamily building, right? Yep. How do you feel, figure out the value of a single family uh, house? It's based off the sold comparisons of houses around it. Right, exactly. Yep. So what if um, there's a lot of foreclosures? <laughs> right, or yeah. What if my neighbors are just taking really cheap deals? I can't control the comps in right. my neighborhood. right. So that was, I, I would say for me, that was the same, that was the big aha moment was to say, I have the ability to control the value of my real estate when it's commercial. And, yeah. and so once I realized that I was like, okay, no more residential, I'm going commercial. And then I started educating myself along those lines. I took a boot camp um, from a guy that I'd, I'd seen uh, at a conference. I really liked when he was on stage, he was um, all about data science. And I was like, this makes so much sense to me. I yeah. love what this guy's saying. And then, uh, and that happened to be Neil Bawa. That was the first time I saw him speak in the Bay Area. Okay. And, um, and then it was about a year later that uh, he was doing a boot camp and I took the boot camp. 
and it, it just really everything just kind of got you know sunk in for me nice. his whole the way he was doing things and uh it, there was just an alignment there okay let so, me ask you this because did you did you do single family or you just investigated yes. it okay you did single yeah, family yeah i did single family okay. i've done you know land land deals i've done you know quite a few things okay l- um, let me throw yeah. this out there just just for the people that are buying rentals right now and going, hey, you know, they, they, I can hear them, in, you know, in my head, they got this voice. Like, what about? So some of the arguments are some of the reasons why people say they don't want to do multifamily. The the mm-hmm. loans are a big one, obviously. Um, another one is that I've heard, and tell me what your opinion is on this, because I'm I'm interested as someone who's who's is deeply into multifamily as you are. You you can control the the value, but you can't control where it is, right? So if you buy it in a, in an area, so let's just say you have single family homes, you have twenty of them, and they're spread out into different cities and different geographic and eco uh, uh, sociological areas. You, you can can you you are diversified, right? As opposed to like an apartment building with five hundred units in a town that kind of goes downhill. That area okay, gets, well, becomes depressed. So now you have all these question. people. Yeah. Okay, great question. And that's where we apply data science very specifically in how we pick our markets, okay? So it is very important, and it's very important for single family too, by the way. Um, But it's very important to pick your markets where the market is going to support your decisions. You're going to make some some mistakes along the way. The market's going to be kind of um, up and down. But a market that has a lot of, you know, tailwinds coming, you know, so it's pushing you along. Those are the markets that you want. So we search for those markets by looking for, uh, we look at population growth, we look at job growth, um, we look at um, you know, unemployment and various things. Now we don't just look at those. I mean, everybody says, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I look at that stuff too, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But we actually look at it in very, very specific ways. So um, for example, for population growth, we're looking for a city where, and, and you can look, use this, you can use free data to do this, if the city is between a quarter million and a million people, we're looking for a city where if you look at the, the numbers between 2000 to 2016, 2017, it depends on what your data is, mm-hmm. there's been a 20% increase in population. Okay. So we want to see a significant increase in population. Okay. So you're not, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm going to kind of support what you're saying here. You're not just looking for a good deal. Like I'm doing air quotes. You're no. not just looking for a good deal, right? It's like, no. it has to make sense from a, from a data standpoint, you know, you have, you have data Absolutely. points that you're looking at and that's smart. Yeah, I think a I, lot of I people yeah. also reiterate that, that, you know, people bring us deals um, all, every day. People yeah. bring us deals and they're like, I want to, I want to send you my spreadsheet. I said, don't send me your spreadsheet. Send me the address. Yeah. Because I don't need to see your spreadsheet. I need to right. see the address. Right. And once I have the address, I can find out the population, the jobs, like all these things. And I can know, am I even interested in looking at the writing? Because we simply will not buy. We're not going to put our investors' money where the demographics don't match up to what we're looking for. Yep, that makes total sense. So you mentioned a team. Uh, you said mm-hmm. basically that that's how that's how your business and in, in, in a commercial real estate operates. What does a team look like? What just maybe give me the bare bones of a team, and then maybe what does your team look like if it's scaled up and you you know have a little bit more going on? What does that team look like? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start with us. So we we are um, equity partners. So we bring equity to deals. We we have a lot of uh, marketing outreach that we do. We have a very large pool of investors mm-hmm. that are very engaged with what we teach because we we teach on multifamily. You about how to buy, uh, how to how to use data techno data science and apply it to real estate and buy apartments wisely. Okay. okay? 
that's one thing people learn from us. And it also attracts a lot of investors that love the methodology. So we've got this very large pool of investors, and then we apply that in, in, in what we do. So okay. we live in California. Okay. We're based out of California. Mm-hmm. We don't buy in California because the deals won't work in California. Yeah. yeah. So what we need, and this is for any, what you need in anyone that's, that's uh, an out-of-state investor, whatever state you live in, is you need boots on the ground. So if you don't live where your property is, you need to partner with people who do live there or who have lived there and know the, know that town really, really well and uh, are, are committed contractually to traveling there uh, once or twice every week or two, and they will visit the property. So, um, so we have typically three to four operating partners. We are considered two of those operating partners, okay. and we're on weekly calls with the property manager as well as weekly calls together. Okay. Um, now, in terms of other people on the team, so, you know, I do the underwriting, um, you know, there's various things that, that um, people bring to the table. You might have, as a, as a larger team, you know, you need to have your brokers. Uh, we have specific broker relationships. We have very special lender relationships. Your lenders are very key to being able to get the deals and um, get the, the, the financing that you need. So you can't forget about those people. Then, of course, your property managers. And we are, we are in lots of different markets. So we don't just have one property manager. Uh, we have ways that we vet property managers in specific markets, whatever market we're in, to find the best property manager. So we've got like a 90-minute interview that we put them through and a whole process. Because, again, we're all about metrics and, um, and, and uh, we're, we're all about experiment. We experiment, experiment until we refine a process and we're like, this is the way to do it. Okay. And uh, we don't just randomly do things. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just curious, just in the interest of trying to always give my listeners some, something tangible, so, something, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they can actually utilize at a high level, maybe conceptually, unless you want to get more specific property managers, how do you find a good property manager? I, I, I guarantee there are people screaming, how do you find a good property manager? <laughs> how, how do you go about that? And I know you said you have a 90 minute interview, but like just maybe some yeah. of the cliff notes of how that goes. Um, well, you know, it starts by finding the four best, assuming the market is, is large enough to support four best property managers in the area. So you need to do some due diligence beforehand. And, and uh, you know, if you have access to uh, something like CoStar, then you're going to look at, at the, you know, the buildings that are comparable to yours and see who's using what. Um, you know, you could, okay. you, you know, so whatever source of data you have, you have to use the best source you have yep. to figure out who, who is using which property manager. And then um, find out, and then you can look at Yelp reviews and that type of thing. But then, and then you set up um, re, uh, appointments, okay. right? And you set up those four appointments. And then we have a, a list. I mean, it's a, a spreadsheet that's got you know just a ton of questions. We ask um, for those four appointments. We ask the um, the four different people the exact same questions, and we write down the um, answers in the columns. Okay. So you can go back and look through those columns and see how each person answered that. And it becomes very obvious who the right pick is. Okay. Now we also record all of the interviews, so we can always we can always go back because the reason we do this is because you whoever you choose, sometimes you're going to find out after a year of working with that person that it's not the right fit. Yeah, um, it's not uncommon to change property managers. So because we have saved um, all of the efforts that we had done as recordings. We can go back and listen to the other ones yeah. and revisit. I and mean, we've got all the data saved. So we can go back and kind of pick to say, okay, well, our second choice was this person, but let's figure, you know, what did they really say about this answer? Because this is a little unclear to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay. Um, 
definitely gone back and, so, and done that. that. So that's, it brings up an interesting point. I know sometimes with multifamily, um, and I guess maybe not, are you just doing commercial by the way, or are you doing actual like, like apartments and things like that? Um, well, commercial apartments are commercial yeah, real estate. Uh, understood. Uh, but I mean, are you just doing, than, yeah, uh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you doing uh, apartments? Starting, uh, so we have a little bit of hospitality. We also have um, student housing in okay. our portfolio. Okay. And um, we are currently looking at deals that are in some other, you know, verticals like industrial. And, that, that's and what I meant, partner. like office space and things like that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. We only partner, by the way, with experts in that field. Sometimes people will bring us a deal like, hey, here's a storage deal. And, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. my first time doing it. What do you think? Yeah. We're like, yeah, good luck. We don't want to partner with people yeah. who don't have experience. Yeah. Because we don't have experience in that. We're, we're really experienced in multifamily. But any vertical that we're not experienced with, it has to be a, a, a total, like, been doing it for 20 years type person. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah. So, you use property managers. Do you ever, um, like, have an on-site someone who you pay and that's their thing and you give them a free unit? Like, do you ever go that route or do you just go outside professional uh, property no, okay. managers? Okay. So, when you have larger buildings, um, so, so 80 units and above typically, um, that's the other great thing about going with, with larger apartment buildings in the budget is your property management, right? Yeah. And that property management is going to be a full-time on-site person. Okay. It doesn't mean they need to live on your property, but it means your budget supports a full-time leasing person and a full-time maintenance person. Okay. Often there's like a half-time maintenance person as well. Like depending on the building, yeah. you might have, you know, more, more staff. Um, so, so that's very important because they are completely, they are dedicated to your property. That is their, that is what they do for a living. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so then they're responsible for doing the unit turns because we're renovating the units on turn and pushing the rents up. Okay. That's we're doing a value add strategy. Okay. Um, and we're, um, and so we're only holding the property um, for typically for five years. So that goes to why I no longer worry about a seven year loan. I'm like, that's plenty of time. We're yeah. out of this in five. Yeah. You know? So uh, it's a real big mind shift moving into this um, value-add world where you're building something to push the value up and increase the value of the building. Because, But when you're, when you're increasing your rents and you're decreasing your, your, your expenses, you're improving your net operating income. Yeah. You're dividing it by that cap rate. So you're moving the value of the building up millions of dollars yeah. in a time frame. Yeah. You sell it, scoop your, take your money off the table, and you go and do it again. Nice. Right? Yep. So it's not about a 10-year hold or a 15-year hold. That's not how you make, generate wealth in this business. Yeah. You want to you want to take your, you know, take the money, return the, the investors money of course, if you've got investors. Yeah. And if you did a good job, they're going to want to invest with you again. That's right? awesome. But but the property managers you will have a full-time property manager on site. Now the property manager still needs managing. Okay? Yeah. And yeah. you as the operating partners, we're asset managers that are managing the property managers. So on a weekly basis, we're, we're asking them how, you know, how many units got turned, what's the occupancy, how many leads came in, how many new leases came in. There's a, a lot of metrics yep. and um, trackers is what we call them that they, they populate and they fill in so that we can really see the progress of, of the property and we can look at our tracker and understand very quickly where we have the issues. There's always things, you know, we're doing good over here, but we see a little bit of trouble over here. Um, and that's what our trackers um, give us visibility into. And then the partners together say, Hey, what should we do about this? But this is, this is, you know, and then we work with the property manager to address the issue. Okay. So I've got a couple questions. A couple things came up that you mentioned. Um, 
really two questions, two main questions. How much of your process involves mm -hmm. just raising the rent without doing anything to it? Okay, like going in and saying these rents are just low, they haven't been increased in years, and just increasing them to get that automatic quick boost. And how much do you look or how desirable is a building that is mostly unrented or mostly rented? Like, wh which would be a more okay. all things being equal, which is more desirable? Sure. Let me let me um, sure. let me start with the first one. Okay. So um, when you have a building that the the rents are are very they're under market, right? Um, and um, so the the market rent. So somebody that's just not even recognizing that you know, say say the market rent is a thousand and their rents are all eight hundred. Yeah. Yes, that is an opportunity for the person acquiring that. That's the loss to lease. That's the difference between the uh, market rent and the 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 rents that the building's currently leased at. Yeah. So it is very true that if you have that opportunity, you can acquire that asset. And simply by moving the rents up to market without doing anything, you can achieve a lot. Now, in the process of doing that, you can expect that you're going to turn over your yeah. tenant base because not all of the people that are in there are going to be able to afford to stay. Right. So now you're going to be attracting new tenants in and you have to consider that you're going to be competing with other um, buildings. Now, how are those other buildings that you're competing with, are they renovated? What have right. they done? And, and you also need to understand some people that are, um, I found this before, people that come from a flipping background, when they think of renovations, they're like granite, stainless steel, <laughs> yeah, yeah. wood floors, right. like amazing modern. Yeah. No, this is, this, you, have to, you have to renovate for the tenant class that yeah. you're working with, yeah. okay? So, so uh, it's very often um, resurfaced for mica and um, laminate floors. Right. And you, you, I mean, things are going to look really nice, but, you know, we're talking about, anywhere from a, you know, like a $4,500 to $6,500, depending on the market you're in and the yeah. labor costs. Yeah. Um, so we're not talking about a $15,000 turn here, yeah. you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it could be, it could just be a $1,200 that you need to put into it. You got to paint it, you got to replace the carpets. Um, but yes, look for that loss to lease opportunity. Okay. And um, that is a great opportunity. And what was your second question? The second question is when you're evaluating a property, oh, all yeah. things being equal, what's more attractive, more rented or less rented? Okay, so that speaks to lenders. And the reason it speaks to lenders is when you're in the multifamily loan uh, world and you're going for a commercial loan, um, the property, if you're looking for a fixed agency debt, which is Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, you, the property needs to be 90% uh, occupied or more. You can't get a, a long-term agency debt, which is like your 10-year, 12-year um, lower fixed, it might be, uh, you know, it depends on the interest rates. Uh, right now, you can get like a 4.2, 4 4.0, which is very good for the commercial world. Yeah. And you can get um, anywhere from two years to four years interest only. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're looking for that type of a loan, you have to be over 90% occupied. Okay. If you're under it, then you have to do what's called a bridge loan. And a bridge loan is variable. So the rent, the, the, um, the rate varies. Mm -hmm. It's based on, you know, one of, one of the, the financial metrics like LIBOR or, you know, 30 day LIBOR, you know, some different things. Yeah. Um, and then it's typically a very common format these days is a three year loan with two one year extensions. And the, 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 it, it's all defined. So it's basically a five year loan, but it's bumping up at one year, one year. Um, and then they will finance. They will finance not only um, the purchase price of the building. You know, maybe six, six, uh, seventy-five. They'll actually go higher. They've been going eighty percent loan to value okay. on the building, and then they go hundred percent on the renovation. 
Oh. So say you need to bring in $2 million to renovate this building to, to execute your business plan. A bridge loan, will, will can you can get 80% on the loan to value and 100% of the, the $2 million. Hmm. With Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, most of them, there might be an exception. I think Fannie might have a renovation um, version as well. But most of them, it's only loan to value, not loan to cost. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Do you always turn all of the units or not always That's before you sell? That's a great question too. Mike, you're full of good questions. <laughs> Thanks. I, I try. I'm listening. I'm paying attention. I'm sincerely interested. I want to know. I'm assuming these are the things people are asking. Okay. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. So in your business plan, um, you need to sell the building to somebody. So again, we're, we're, we're moving the building and then the, the plan is to sell it. Okay. And who are you going to sell it to? So you're likely to sell it to another investor. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is we want to leave some meat on the bone, mm -hmm. is how we say it. So the plan, if 100% if of the units are unrenovated, you may only want to renovate 50% or 75% um, so that you leave some percentage of renovations for the next person. Um, you also could not do everything. Um, so you're doing you know, 90%, but again, you want to leave something for the next person. Yeah. If you do everything, so you're 100% renovated, exterior, interior, 100% renovated, the only, you're, you're reducing your, um, the, your sales audience mm -hmm. to um, like, you know, industrial like REITs and stuff like that that are yeah. going to come in. Uh, they, all they're doing is they're, they're buying it and hoping to, that it will appreciate. Yeah. Right. Yep. But our game is forced appreciation. We buy buildings and we do value-add strategies and we force the appreciation. We don't rely on appreciation. We have a business plan that, that, that moves that appreciation. That's interesting. Um, because it, so it appear, it seems as if you're finding these, these opportunities, these investment mm -hmm. um, uh, um, units, and you're, you know that there's you know, maybe X amount of total uh, upgrades, things that can be done to maximize this value. And you're only going a portion of the way purposefully That's stopping, correct. leaving meat on the bone, like you say, so you can flip that to an investor. And I assume then you sort of, as, as part of your process, you lay out what else needs to, or could be done and yeah. what that yeah. looks like for them. If at the end of the day, if they do Very those renovations, so, say, you know, here's what we've done. Um, here's what's left to be done. Sometimes what you see these days, if you find like a real, um, like raw apartment building, I've, if people will buy it and they'll do the the major work like the roofs and the mechanicals and the the, the big scary things mm -hmm. that people might be scared of, and then they'll bring the occupancy up. So they probably use a bridge loan to do this. Like maybe the occupancy was really low. Yeah. They bring up the occupancy, but they don't do any of the interior renovations, and then they basically flip it at that point to another investor who right. may not be as skilled in doing those or or you know uh, experienced enough to do yeah. the major mechanicals. Um, so maybe they only hold it for two years okay. or even 18 months. Um, so that's more of a flip. We are, we yeah. are doing longer, you know, um, I'd say three to five years. We also have some 10 year deals. Once in a while you have investors that want to invest for the long term with you. Yeah. Um, and then there's also deals that we are in, uh, doing, which are opportunity zone and an opportunity zone um, project requires that the money stays in for 10 years after the last investor comes in. So that's an 11 year hold. Okay. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. I, and I do want to hit on that, but I want to go back just for a second because I'm going to I'm going to beat this until I get all all my own personal questions out of my head. Go for it, Mike. Um, what re are there renovations that you typically for sure do and some that you do not do? Like I, I assume you guys are dialed in, you're you're a machine and you're not just haphazardly doing things. 
what, what are some of the things that you maybe don't do uh, typically and you leave them? What, what meat do you leave on the bone in other words? What types of things do you typically you know, leave for the other investor? Every, I have to say every market is, is different. And okay. the other thing that's different is every deal because we, you know, it's, it's very rare these days to find a deal that everything is unrenovated because yeah. so much of this has been turned already. Okay. Um, so it's, it's more common that we are one of the people that's coming in after some of the renovations already been done because that's all you can find out there these days. Yeah. Okay. So it may have traded hands two or three times already yeah. um, in the past six or seven years. Um, okay. now if we do find, if we do find a project that, um, that we really want, that we really love the asset and we really love the market, we might hold it for, for seven or eight years. And by the time you're, you're on seven or eight years in the next person coming in, they're going to need to renovate the, the units again. True. Yeah. Right? That's a good point. Gonna yeah. Need, it's going to be a light upgrade. Right. Um, you could also look at it that way because people always need to gussy things up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but we still wouldn't renovate all of them. We'd still probably leave some. Okay. Um, and then also just in terms of renovations, some markets uh, or some apartment buildings, you have two styles. So you'll have our three styles. You have your classic which is kind of a, you know, less renovated, but still, you know, a good place to live. Yeah. And then you have two levels of premium renovations so okay. that you can offer different rents to different people. Okay. To, you know. I like that. That, yeah, that's, that, that's very, very, very cool. So tell me how you evaluate your markets. How, what do you look for in a market? How does that process work for you? Um, well, the, the big how that I do it is we um, collate data from a lot of different sources okay. into a spreadsheet and I mash it all up and then we sort it. Um, and we're, the things that we're looking for, again, are jobs, population, um, and at, within the market, we're looking for like unemployment rates. Um, we want to be places where, where tenants can afford to pay their rent okay. and where they have really good jobs. Uh, we also are looking for areas where the crime levels are not so high um, because, you know, who wants to live where there's a lot of crime yep. or understand what the crime levels are because that is, that is a risk. Interestingly enough, we are not as invested in um, schools as we are in crime. And I, I know for like residential or like flipping, like single family, you're all, it's all about the schools, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, because people, you're going to be selling it to somebody that's going to be there for a long time. Right. With apartment buildings there, it's, it's not like somebody's going to live there for 15 years and raise their family there. Right. So a tenant is much more concerned about crime levels and less concerned about the school quality that makes sense. Um, nearby. So um, other things that we're very concerned in, in the neighborhood. So the market we talked about the, you know, jobs, population, employment in the neighborhood, the micro neighborhood, mm -hmm. we're looking for a median household income of $40,000 or above. Across so, the board, across the whole in United a, States. In the micro, in, no, in the micro neighborhood. Oh, okay. Okay. So okay. In the micro neighborhood. So you, you, somebody sends me an address yeah. and they say, this is, the, this is the property. I'm going to look at that address. And I'm going to look at what the, the data says about that address. And in that micro neighborhood, I want the median household income to be over $40,000. Gotcha. Um, That's interesting, though. I guess what I, I didn't really articulate it well. So that doesn't matter if you're in Mobile, Alabama, or San Francisco, California. Well, that, that's, that's what I'm saying. The markets, see, again, the markets, we're looking for job growth and population growth. Mm -hmm. uh, that's our, our major, our major, major drivers. I also exclude anything where the cap rate's too low. So okay. that's why we, okay. we don't invest in, you know. And we also exclude things where the cap rates are too high. We're not interested in, in being in markets that are, um, you know, crazy high because yeah. there's, and what, is, what does a high cap rate really mean? Uh, a high cap rate is risk. Yeah. Right? Yep. 
So we are shepherds of our of our investors' money. Yeah. So we are we are finding the best way to to move our investors' money um, to returns. But we we're not looking for markets that have you know twelve twelve caps and ten caps. Yeah, yeah, you know? that makes sense. Um, that makes yeah. Sense. So market from the market level, we find the markets first, and then within the markets, we look at the micro neighborhoods. Okay. Just because the market's good doesn't mean we're going to buy anything. Yeah. There. Yeah. We have to look at the neighborhood because you don't want to be in the worst neighborhood yep. because you're not going to succeed there. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, from a from a data science uh, standpoint, we we touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you optimize the management. Uh, of your of your property ma- of the property management side using data science like what what are you doing that maybe other people don't do and you're doing okay. it well well what we're doing is on the on the asset management side right so so um, we have um, I mentioned that we've got some trackers that we use and yep. everybody's got you know some trackers that they use I think some of the things that we're doing that's that's a little unique is we've got um, tra- for example we've got a tracker that looks at leads coming into the apartment. We have systems where we um, um, are doing things behind the, the curtains that generate a lot of leads to the apartment. It's one of the services we bring as partners. We kind of hack um, various ad system, um, advertisement systems that, that promote um, leads for apartments. Okay. And we're able to generate 10x the number of leads that the property manager is able to create. Okay. okay. So based on that, we're looking at the leads that an apartment gets. Because what are leads? Leads creates more people looking at your apartment, which is going to create more leases, which is going to drive up your occupancy. Yep. So you have to start with leads. So first of all, we're throwing as many leads as we can, right? Yep. And then we are tracking um, how the, the property management is dealing with those leads. So we have a, a metric that we look at that is looks at the number of leads per week. And then after leads, from those leads, how many appointments were set. And then from those appointments, how many shows, how many people actually showed up and were showed. And then from those shows, how many applications were, were, um, you know, signed up. Yeah. And then from those applications, how many actually generated leases? Nice. So it's L-A-S-A-L. It's called LASAL. It's something that, that Neil Bawa kind of coined and, and put together. Okay. And depending on the size of the building, there's different, and we look at the ratios between each one. Yeah. Uh, so we're able to, um, really hone in on the performance of the lead engine and how how it's translating into leases. And a lot of people don't look at that. They just say, oh, you know, there's we got 10 phone calls last week. Yeah. You know, well that's that's why you got no leases yeah. last week. That's so so we're we're yeah. we're pushing, pushing, pushing on on it's not just renovations like turn those units faster. It's rent this place up. Yeah. And even if you have um it say like we have one building that's 98% occupied. It's like we can't. We keep raising the rent. It's always ninety-eight percent occupied, which is what you do when it's ninety-eight percent occupied. You keep raising the rent. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And how can you keep um, keep it filled at, at the higher prices by having a lot of leads, right? Yep. You also have to have a good reputation and all of that. That building has a great reputation. It's sure. a Class B asset um, that's actually in Dalton, Georgia. Okay. And uh, we have a great team over there, and it's been a fabulous asset for investors. That's awesome. It's very similar. It's funny. I think it's a hallmark of, of a good business, honestly, in any industry. But we call them KPIs in our business, <clears throat> and basically, it's you know, from from a from a, a real estate investor standpoint, it's you, you do marketing. How many calls did I get? How many calls does it yes. take to get an appointment? How many appointments to get a contract? How many exactly. contracts? And it just kind of works its way down. So you know, 
if you're not, if your bottom line isn't where it needs to be, you know, all the relationships and the ratios between. So, you know how much more to pour into the top of the funnel. Very, very cool. I'm glad you said that because it it really does support a lot of of what I talk about. It's like I I equate it to flying an airplane without the instrument panel. Like who who would do that? You you have to understand all the variables that are affecting your, where you were trying to go. So very, very cool. Are you ever tempted? that to various things so we we're always looking at ratios and relationships and tracking things and uh, you know from the budget standpoint and expenses and looking at budget versus actual and uh, tracking unit renovations to see what all the costs are and how what the turn time is so everything is is you know it's data that then we can use to look at performance to improve things and tweak things We're, we're tweakers we're always you know, that's, that's actually didn't sound very good, did it? We're, <laughs> we're, we're tweakers. problem solvers. We don't do drugs, really. Anna Myers, <laughs> a tweaker. We don't do drugs. Uh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> that's so funny. So as no, you're talking- We're problem solvers. We're hats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's so it's so smart. I'm glad you said that because I think people sometimes think that we just sort of like, you know, people run businesses just like, hey, like you said, 10 calls came in. Like, I don't know what that means, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. You, you made me think as you were talking, <clears throat> are you ever tempted to hold something long term? Like the, the, the unit that you said is you just keep increasing and there's just always 98% full. Like, do you ever have the conversation with your partner, Neil, and say, let's just get long term financing. Let's cash out our investors and let's just keep this thing because it's just a cash cow. Is that ever part of it? Or you have a formula, you have a goal and you're just boom, you're just doing it. I think that those conversations um, usually happen when we're acquiring the asset because it depends on what type of loan you get, you know? Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, they can happen. Um, okay. We have some markets that we look at that we feel like it has a lot of growth left. We're very bullish on um, various markets in Utah. Okay. And we're looking at longer term holds in those markets. We, we feel the, that those markets are, are, you know, they're, they're not five-year markets. Those are 10 year markets. They have a lot of growth left in them. And if you sell too early, especially when it's a market, that's an easy market in terms of the tenant base, Mm -hmm. it's a, once you're in there and you've got your business plan in place, it's not hard, a hard market to operate in. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're mostly Mormons, so they, they behave themselves. That's right. You know? That's right. They're good people. <laughs> they are. Utah, <laughs> Utah has wonderful people. It, it really is a fantastic state in many, many ways. Yep. And they uh, really support business there. It's very business friendly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we're, we're very bullish on Utah. Yep. I have friends there. I, I totally agree. Great market. Yeah. Um, so t- you, you mentioned opportunity zones. Let, let's talk a little about what is an opportunity zone. What, what does that mean? Sure. So, so opportunity zones um, came about in the 2017 tax laws, the tax code that came in. And what they did is they, they um, identified, actually it was the governors that identified areas where the income levels were, were inconsistent with the areas around them. We're talking about like at the census tract level. Okay. So they looked at the census tracts and they, um, they said, well, this census, the, the areas around this, the census tracts around this have a much higher um, income levels than this one and so there's and and so what they're trying to do the idea is they want cap they're going to give tax advantages to people that invest into these opportunity zones so you can move capital gains into um you have to do it through an opportunity zone fund but an opportunity zone fund could just be a single asset so it's just a a single piece of paper you you turn in with your paperwork to make it a fund okay so um so you can move your capital gains and invest it into this, this um, asset and, and experience a lot of um, tax benefits. 
that's a very simplistic way, which people go like, wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah. But devil's in the details. So um, so let's talk about the details a little okay, bit. Okay. So, so do you want to hear about it from an investor standpoint first or the um, owner standpoint first, let's, the building owner? Let's do it from the build, building owner standpoint first. Okay. So if you are looking to buy um, of assets in an opportunity zone, um, what you need to, to understand is that, um, first of all, it has to be completely within the opportunity zone. But if you, the way that it works is, say we're built, buying a building for a million dollars, okay? When you buy it for a million dollars, there's a portion of that that's allocated towards land and a portion of that that's allocated toward the building. That's how it works, right? Mm -hmm. So say 750 of it is building and 250 of it is land. The way Opportunity Zone works is you now need to bring another $750,000 in to increase the value of that property um, to make it Opportunity Zone eligible. And you have to do it within 31 months. Okay. So you, you, and, and then you have to hold the asset for 10 years. Oh. Okay? Okay. So when you say when you say you have to bring it in within thirty one months, is that you, the, know, you have to actually use you have to use that money? You, that's what I was going to ask you. Okay, you okay, it's not improve. Gotcha. You have to complete the improvements. Gotcha. Within the time frame. Gotcha. Okay, so so for many people that are looking at, they're like, yeah, opportunity zone. But then when they understand that 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 uh, those rules, they're like, well, there's no way I could spend that amount that amount of money on this. There's, yeah. you know, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like that would be crazy. Yeah. Um, so for us, we feel that what it mostly is is going to be new construction because okay. that's what makes the most sense. Yeah. Uh, you could be buying an existing asset. Maybe it's an old house and you're knocking it down and, and, and building you know, a fourplex there. Yeah. Um, or you could have an existing multifamily um, that you're buying and then you're building a new multifamily in the back because there's a, a room in the back. So yeah. those will be you know, kind of uh, scenarios. Or you're just buying land yeah. and then you're building on it. Okay, um, okay. So, um, so those are some things you under, need to understand about from a, from a buyer's standpoint. Now, from an investor's standpoint, um, you can bring in capital gains from many different things. Okay, it's not just land to land. It's not like I sold my house, I can move it in. That is a source of capital gain. However, you could also bring it in from stocks. If you sell stocks, if you sell you know, whatever you sell in the stock market, yeah. that's a capital gain that you can then put into the opportunity zone. And I'll tell you about the advantages of the, the tax advantages in a minute. You could sell a car, you could sell artwork, anything, pretty much anything that's a capital gain, you can um, then put into an opportunity zone fund. Now, here's how the tax advantages work. You, um, the first thing that you get is you get to defer paying taxes. You do have to pay taxes on the capital gains you brought in. Okay. But the way it works is you're deferring the payment for seven years, okay? Seven okay. years from now. So it's 2027. Yeah you have to pay taxes on that gain. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, you get for sure. You get paying your taxes. Yeah. That's nice. And if you were to, to have the money in for seven years, which again would be this, this timeline if you get into an opportunity zone now, then you also get forgiveness of up to 15%. Wow. So instead of paying 100% of your uh, capital gains, you're paying 85%. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. If you miss the timeline for the seven year, and you, then there's a five-year window, that goes from 15% down to 10%, which is still kind of cool. Yeah. Right? Very cool. Um, however, the big, big benefit of, of investing in an opportunity zone fund is that the, any um, value that, that is made with the investment, so any increase on that investment during those 10 years, that portion, that capital gain is tax-free. Wow. You pay no taxes. 
on the gain huh. that you that 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 asset has achieved, but you have to hold it for ten years. Okay. So there's no exiting early, otherwise you don't get that gain. Yeah, you don't get that benefit. Huh. Uh, so that's why a lot of people are really excited about it. Plus, um, plus the fact that there was no there was no way to shield their capital gains from those other types of assets. And we have 1031s in real estate, mm -hmm. but you can't 1031 from a stocks anymore. That's yeah. not a possibility. Right. So for many people, so what the the intention of the government was to free up all of this capital that's stuck that people are like just holding it because they don't want to pay taxes. Right. And so they're trying to get them to invest in communities and census tracts that need capital infused into it. Very so, cool. Pretty cool. But cool. there are perils that you need to understand, right? Okay. So first of all, remember, this is a distressed area, right? <clears throat> right. right? By nature, it's mm -hmm. an area that's, you know, not, not doing as well as the other areas around it. Right. And we also said that you are most likely going to have to build new construction, right? Yeah. So that means we're putting a class A building in a class C or D location. Right. That's a mismatch. Yep. That's going to be problematic. Okay. So how do we get around that? We get around that by researching the opportunity zones. There's 8,700, over 8,700 opportunity zones in the United States that were defined with the tax law. Okay. Of those over 8,700, 19% of them are in already gentrifying areas. Hmm. So they are in areas where the median household income is already over $40,000. Remember yeah. we mentioned that, that yep. median household income? Yep. It's already over $40,000. It might even be $60,000. It just happens that the, the census track next to it is $120,000. Well, I would rather go into to yeah. that opportunity zone where the median household income is at 60K versus going into an opportunity right. zone where the, the median household income is 18K, Yeah. right? Yeah. It's going to be a much better match yep. for um, class, you know, class A construction. Yeah, so that makes sense. One of the other perils is that um, a developer has to stay on the project because you can't build it and sell it, right? Remember, we have to hold it for yep. 10 years. Um, so many developers, that's not their MO. Yeah. What does the developer do? They build things and, and they, they sell them. Things. They yeah. move on to the next thing, that's right. right? Yeah. So what we do is we look to partner with developers that their normal operation of business is that they build things and they hold on to them and they know how to asset manage them as, as part of a team. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. That's just their normal thing that they do. Yeah. We're not asking them to do anything different. It's part of their normal life. So nice. that, again, is a way that we're – and we're looking at the perils and, and, and seeking solutions because we're bringing investor money in. Our investors are saying we want Opportunity Zone um, projects. Yeah. And so we, as, as, as people that are all about you – know, we're all mental about how do we find the best projects in the best areas, these are some of the things we think about and how we have determined how to avoid the perils. Very so, cool. I mean, that's very, that's very cool. Very. Is that a big part of your business, the opportunity zones, or is that just a small we have component? A, uh, we, well, it's become a new, new area that we're very invested in for the next few years. We have a division that we've developed that's dedicated to opportunity zones. We speak at, at conferences about it, lots of meetups. Um, we have huge demand from our investor um, database yeah. related to opportunity zones. And we've got some fantastic projects that we're bringing forth. Um, some in the hospitality area. I mean, there's there's some great stuff coming up. Very um, cool. Did you know that downtown Phoenix is an opportunity zone? No, I did not. Is I did that not. crazy? That is what? crazy. I would have never like, guessed that. Somebody had to pay something 
to somebody for that. <laughs> so, so, we're, yeah. you know, so, so those are the types of, of things we're, you know, we're seeking out the locations and the relationships that are going to be like, even if it wasn't an opportunity zone, it would have been a good investment. Yeah. That's our target. Yeah. That, that the opportunity zone is just the icing on the cake. Yeah. It's like the deal would have worked out otherwise, and it would have been a good location otherwise, but now we're getting tax benefits along with it. Very smart. Very smart. Anna, you are a smart person. There is no doubt about it. My brain hurts from all the information coming in, <laughs> but, very, but very interesting. Very cool. Now, is there any anything that you, that you want to talk about or anything that you have going on that you're excited about right now that you'd like to let the listeners know about or... What what do you what do you got going on that you want that you're really um, excited about? Sure. Well, we've got lots of um, projects coming our pipeline. We're really all about education, though. So um, we like people to engage with us and get a real sense of who we are. Um, we have webinars every week okay. um, that we do at multifamilyu.com. They're free. Okay. So um, we we have a lot of content that we put out there to really educate people so that they understand different asset classes. They understand things. So I co-host a lot of those um, webinars each week. Okay. We also teach um, Multifamily U, uh, which is a, an apartment boot camp. We teach that um, every every quarter, so four times a year. One time it's done as a physical boot camp in the San Francisco Bay Area, okay. and then the other three times it's an e-boot camp where you log on and we're teaching it live. It's very interactive. Okay. Um, so again, we're all about technology, so yeah. um, so that's um, how we roll. Okay, and they can find all that at multifamilyu.com. Yeah, com. So they can find our webinars as well as information about um, our boot camp. And then the growcapitus.com, if you're interested in finding out about uh, what projects we've got coming up or you want to, you know, make a, make a, set up a phone call, um, we can do that um, right away. Awesome. I can actually give you a few text numbers um, if you want uh, a text codes to add Let's that do people it. can roll quickly. Okay. So if you're interested in finding out more about the boot camp, you text and no, there's no spaces and it's R E boot camp to four, four, two, two, two. Okay. Okay. If you're interested in finding about out about opportunity zones, I want you to text O Z perils, O Z P E R I L S to four, four, two, two, two. And then Got you'll it. get our booklet on OZ on, on that's the five perils. I only went through a few of them. Yeah. The five perils of, of opportunity zones and how we we suggest um, overcoming them. So really educating investors about that are interested in opportunity zones on how to be smart about it nice. and not throw their money down the wrong hole. Very cool. We will put all that in the show notes. So the, those of you driving and swerving, trying to grab a pen, don't do it. Uh, we'll have in the show notes so you guys can find all that. And uh, I've I've taken up a lot of your time, but and I really appreciate that you do you did this. Um, this information was um, definitely advanced for sure, and that's a good thing because I think this is the kind of this is the kind of really cool stuff that if you're if you're thinking about investing, or maybe you're our investor, maybe you have a bunch of multifamilies and, and you're flip, you've been flipping for a while and you're looking for what to do next. What's my next step? How do I, how do I level up from what I'm doing? I think this is a good place for you to start and go to multifamily. You check them out, get on the webinars, talk to Anna and her team and find out if this is for you, because it's definitely exciting. And it's like you said, you, you have so much control over the value of the asset, much more than a single family, because for the reasons that we talked about, right, you can't control who's selling your house for what but you can control your costs and your rents and therefore increase the, the value of your assets. So uh, right. um, what you guys are doing is awesome. And again, I, I very much appreciate your time and I, I thank you for spending it with us here. Thank you, Mike. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. All right. 
And there you have it, Anna Myers. She was incredible, right? I mean, just super smart, super giving uh, with her time and her knowledge. And and uh, if you want to if you want to find out more, um, we, we'll have those all those links for you in the show notes, so you can go and check out what she's up to and learn from her and get more involved in what uh, when, what she's up to. So, uh, with that being said, guys, uh, you know I always say it, but there's only one way you're going to succeed in real estate investing or anything that you're doing in life, really, and that's to you know get out there and don't just think about it. Don't read about it. You know, listening to podcasts like this is fantastic and I appreciate you being here. But the only thing that makes a difference and really moves the needle at the end of the day is if you just get out there and just start. So get out there and get after it. We'll talk to you next time.